History tells the story of the world and of our lives. Sometimes that history goes bump in the night. Broadcasting from the center of oddity and the supernatural in Central Florida, it's the History Goes Bump podcast. Hello, you spectacular people. Welcome to this 420th episode of the History Goes Bump podcast, Ghost Tours for the Theater of the Mind. I am your host, Diane. And this is Kelly. Kelly, on this episode, we're going to do a city that was suggested to us by Melanie Antonelli, and that is Ellicott City, which is found in Maryland. Looking forward to it. Lots of haunted locations here and lots of great history. Before we jump into welcoming people into the spectacular crew, we want to send out our thoughts and well wishes to Bailey, our listener. She was in a horrible car accident earlier in January, and uh, it's a miracle she survived when we saw pictures of the car. Yeah, it was very upsetting, and we definitely have her in our thoughts and prayers. Yeah, sweet young kid. We got to meet her at the St. Augustine Live show that we just did last year. So, Yep, she is a bright star, that's for sure. Hopefully a full recovery is on the way for you. Now, welcome to the Spooktacular crew, Missy, Maureen, Tracy with an EY, Kim, Ashley, Johanna, Amanda, and Eva. <laughs> Wally. I know. I had to say it like Wally says it because I love Wally. I actually have one on my desk when I'm doing the research. Yes, you do. Welcome to our Facebook group, everyone. And now this moment, Noddity. The moment in oddity was suggested by Chelsea Flowers. There's a very unusual grotto that can be found in Margate, Kent. Inside this intricate cave system are walls and walls covered in seashells. About 4.6 million of them to be exact. Nearly all the surface areas of the walls and roof are covered. The shells are of a local variety including cockles, mussels, limpets, oysters, and scallops and are thoughtfully placed in unique shapes and interesting murals and mosaics. The winding passageway goes for about 70 feet and ends in a rectangular room. This room measures 15 feet by 20 feet. There's another area called the rotunda that is domed with an opening to let in sunlight. James Newlove is credited with the discovery of the Shell Cave Grotto in 1835, but his children claim to have found it years before and used it for a clubhouse of sorts. No one knows who constructed the grotto or when. Most theories assume that the place was used as a pagan temple. Others think that this was a place where secret societies met. Whatever the case, it was used as a place to conduct seances for a time, and today is a museum you can visit. The Shell Cave Grotto certainly is odd. This history podcast is haunted. And now, this month in history. Mm-hmm. 
the month of January, on the 13th in 1842, British soldier Dr. William Bryden, the sole survivor of a massacre in Cabal, escapes to safety. The Anglo-Afghan War started in 1839 after Britain interfered in Afghanistan's internal affairs by trying to replace the current emir with a former emir sympathetic to the British. By 1842, things were not going well for the British after they had successfully captured Kabul. They decided to withdraw on January 6, 1842, but bad weather slowed their progress. A group of Afghan soldiers caught up with the group at the Khyber Pass and attacked them, killing many of them. The Afghans hit again later and massacred everybody, with only Dr. Bryden managing to escape. The massacre killed 4,500 soldiers and 12,000 camp followers. The British retaliated by invading Kabul in 1843. An alliance was signed but broken in 1878 with the Second Anglo-Afghan War. Ellicott City is a suburb outside of Baltimore with a historic and shopping district that attracts visitors year-round. And it makes sense that this would be a town to bring in tourists, as this is the home to the first terminus of the B&O Railroad. Founded back in the late 1700s, there's a lot of history here. The city was named one of TripAdvisor's top 10 spooky American getaways because this is quite the haunted town. Join us as we explore the history and hauntings of Ellicott City. Quakers founded Ellicott City in 1772. Brothers Andrew, Joseph, and John Ellicott first arrived in 1771, and they chose the spot because of its location. They had big plans for milling and manufacturing. James Hood was already here and had built a gristmill, which he sold to Joseph in 1774. Hood's son Benjamin had built a corn grinding mill, too. The brothers added a flour mill and called their town Ellicott's Mills, for obvious reasons. This became one of the largest milling and manufacturing towns. The brothers convinced local farmers to switch from tobacco growing to wheat. The milling business eventually had issues and the family could no longer support it, so they sold everything in 1840. The railroad came in 1830 with the B&O Railroad choosing this as their first terminus. And every time I say that, I think of Monopoly. (laughs) Absolutely. Peter Cooper was a foundry owner in Baltimore and he built the first iron steam engine meant to transport people and he named it Tom Thumb. (laughs) I love that he named it Tom Thumb. I do too. A very famous race was held in August 1830 between a horse-drawn rail carriage and the Tom Thumb at Relay Junction between Ellicott's Mills and Baltimore to see which was faster. The horse won when the train's drive belt broke, but it gave the steam engine the boost it needed to get people excited about traveling via the rails in it. The Civil War brought the Gaithers Raiders to town as they marched to Baltimore. Ellicott's Mills also got attention when Winan's steam gun ended up in town on its way to Harper's Ferry and it was seized by the Union Army. Camp Johnson, which was a 1,200-man group from the 12th New Jersey Volunteer Infantry, set up on the front lawn of the Patapsco Female Institute. The city saw no major battles, though. In 1867, the city was incorporated and the name was changed to Ellicott City. The city has seen its troubles. The temperance movement came through, racist political gangs shot and wounded black voters in 1879, and a lynch mob hanged Jacob Henson after he murdered shop owner Daniel Shea in 1895. 
the mob was afraid the governor would release Henson for insanity, so took matters into their own hands. After that, the governor ordered all death row inmates to be sent to the Maryland Penitentiary. But that was the past. Today, Ellicott City is a beautiful town that has made it into the 20 best places to live in the United States by Money Magazine four times. And it's home to quite a few ghosts. So first up, we have the Howard County Welcome Center. This is located at 8267 Main Street. This site once welcomed more than visitors to the town. This place welcomed the dead. The W.J. Bruley Funeral Home used to front this spot on Main Street. The Gaither livery stables were in the back. Two brothers ran the funeral parlor until one of them died in 1872. Stephen Hillsinger bought it at that time and continued with the same line of business, renaming it the Hillsinger Undertaking Parlor. He ran that until 1922 when he died on, of all nights, Halloween night. Whoa. Perfect night for an undertaker to die, don't you think? (laughs) I would imagine so. This remained a funeral parlor until it was decided to build a post office. The buildings on the site were torn down in 1937. A stone building was erected and dedicated in 1940. In 1996, the basement was opened up for a visitor center, and it moved topside when the Postal Service left in 2009. The building was fully restored in 2016. All the vintage fixtures and furnishings are still here. Artist Petro Paul Diana made the oil paintings that decorate the west and east walls. And I guess people come from all over just to see those specifically. These were done under a New Deal program created by President Franklin Roosevelt to help boost morale during the Great Depression. Visitors and employees claim to experience phantom smells. You know, old lady perfume, probably. (laughs) Trust your nose picture. (laughs) You know what? Actually, since this used to be a funeral home, I don't think I want any of those phantom smells. Yeah, I would agree with that I'm betting formaldehyde (laughs) is one of them. To see strange things and to hear odd sounds and the culprit most people blame are the funeral parlor businesses that were once here. And I would love to do an investigation there. Clearly, there's never been one done. I bet we'd get a lot of stuff. And next, we have the Judge's Bench Bar, which is located at 8385 Main Street. This had originally been the property of Thomas, Elias, and William Brown, who received the land in a grant in the 1700s. The Brown family held the property, which was known as Mount Misery, until 1819, and they sold it to Irvin McLaughlin. This was 10 acres of land, and McLaughlin paid $5,000. In 1853, he sold the property to a 27-year-old woman named Sophia Frost. She and her husband built a house here that also served as a confectioner's store. And the Frost family would hold it for almost 100 years, eventually selling it to Joseph Berger and his wife. They opened a grocery there, naming it Joe Berger's Grocery. The Burgers left in the 1960s, and a flooring company moved in. The judge's bench opened in the 1970s and was thought to have its name inspired by judges and court officials who would hang out at the Frost store enjoying frosty beverages because it was across from the original courthouse. Buzz Souter bought the bar in 1992. And I couldn't help but say frosty beverages because the Frost had opened the store. (laughs) (laughs) You're so clever. There's a ghost that haunts the property, and many believe that this is Mary, the daughter of the Burgers. Even though the Burgers had their business in Ellicott City, they forbade their daughter from dating any boys in the city because it was such a rough place. As these legends go, Mary fell in love with a boy from the wrong side of the tracks, and when her parents said she could never see him again, she climbed to the fourth story and hanged herself. Shortly after her funeral, people started claiming that they saw Mary in the store. People walking past the building when it was empty would claim to see a woman peering out of the windows, especially the attic windows. Liquor bottles fall down on their own behind the bar, and one of the bar owners even found a bunch of whiskey bottles lined up neatly on the floor behind the bar one morning when he opened up. Unless, of course, his employees were playing a trick on him. 
Construction workers also had experiences during renovation with seeing a female apparition. Employees have felt cold blasts in the attic and the toilets flushed by themselves in the restroom. And one of the more bizarre stories has a bartender claiming that he fell in love with the female ghosts and spoke to her often. Okay. Love to know more about that. It's like the woman that married the pirate ghost. (laughs) I do have to say, when I was a teenager, I liked those little teeny bopper romance novels that were out there. And my favorite one, of course, was this girl. She worked at this old, I think it was like a mill, like an old grist mill. And it had the Mm -hmm. water wheel outside of it and everything. And I think they were like a realty company or something. And she was their little secretary, office manager type thing. And she was always ending up having to work late and stuff like that. And this guy would keep coming by there. And he would talk to her a lot. And she ended up falling in love with him. But she was always like, well, do you want to, you know, go somewhere sometime, go to a movie or to dinner or something? And he could never go and do anything. And eventually it came out. She saw they they were doing like a heritage day or something like that. And they had all these old pictures of the people who had worked at the mill. And there's the guy in one of those old pictures. And so she figured out that she was having this relationship with the ghost. (laughs) That was cute. Now on to the B&O Railroad Station Museum, which is located at 3711 Maryland Avenue and is the oldest commercial railroad station because it was the first. The B is in reference to Baltimore and the O is for Ohio. Did you know that? I did not. I didn't either. All those years of playing Monopoly. I know. Had no idea. I, I, we used to always joke when we were kids because, you know, B.O. Ha ha ha. Need some deodorant. <laughs> it's the, the stinky train. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) I'm sure they're rolling over in their graves now. This B&O station was completed in 1831 and was the terminus between Baltimore and Ellicott Mills. Steam engines were repaired here and freight could be stored. The original station was not built for passengers, but during a mid-1800s remodel, waiting rooms were added, one for men and one for women and children. A brick freight house was added in 1885. Train activity fell off by 1928, and in the 1950s, the use of the station by passengers stopped. Freight was still transported until the early 1970s. The old station then became a museum and a haunted one at that. The reasons for hauntings are the hundreds of deaths that have taken place along the line. The most recent deaths were in 2012. CNN reported on this. Two teenage girls were killed early Tuesday when a train derailed on the bridge they were sitting on, spilling coal and burying the young women, police in Maryland said. Rose Mayer and Elizabeth Nass, both 19, were apparently sitting on a bridge ledge in Ellicott City, Maryland, just after midnight, with their backs to the train when it derailed, according to a written statement from Howard County Police. The two girls posted photos to Twitter shortly before the crash. One showed feet dangling over a road with the caption, Levitating. Another appeared to look down Main Street. Employees at the museum claim to hear the sounds of dragging across the floor like freight is being moved. One evening, a group of Civil War reenactors were staying overnight in the station. One of the men couldn't sleep, so he got up to wander around and ended up sitting on the steps right outside the station. Another man in military garb joined him, and the two chatted for a bit, and then the man walked away, but in the opposite direction of the station. The reenactor called out to him, asking why he wasn't heading back to the station, and the man disappeared. Next, we have the wine bin, which is located at 8390 Main Street and was the third fire station in the city. It was originally known as Ellicott City Fire Department Station Number 2. Andrew Isaac had purchased the lot in 1860 and later sold it to Edward Brown, who sold it to Charles T. Mackinson in 1881. Mackinson built a fine carriage factory on the site, and it operated for 30 years until a fire destroyed the building. 
the lot was vacant for a while, and then the Howard County Volunteer Firemen's Association bought it to build a firehouse. And isn't that just a interesting coincidence that a fire had taken out the building that was there before? This is true. The structure was designed in the Colonial Revival style by architect Hubert G. Jory and built by the Mancini Construction Company out of Baltimore. The firehouse was completed in 1939 and dedicated on May 1, 1940. There was an octagonal lantern on top of the two-story structure that was inspired by the one at Horrigan Manor, and the building was embellished with Flemish bond brickwork, a battlemented top, and Doric columns. The wine bin was opened here in 2008 by Dave Carney. Firefighters reported sounds of silverware rattling in the kitchen when no one was in there. The old typewriter would type by itself. Activity always seemed to pick up when the trucks would go on calls. They would lock up when leaving, and when they would come back, they would find the place completely unlocked. Figuring that someone was playing a prank on them with the lost key, they changed all the locks, but the unlocking antics continued. The station's dog Yogi used to indicate that something was in the building that no one else could see. He would perk up his ears and sit upright, and then seem to follow something coming through a door and walking down the hallway. Whatever was there seemed to be heading to the apartment where Fire Chief Harrison Shipley had lived with his family. Yogi would bark at times at the door there, and no one was ever inside. The former fire chief is thought to be the ghost here. He served and lived here from 1935 to 1957. When Dave Carney opened the wine bin here, he immediately felt the spirits. He told Shelley Davies Weingen in her book Haunted Ellicott City, I could feel the captain as soon as I entered the store. I felt that he was far from threatening. In fact, from stories that I heard on the spirit tour, he seemed quite playful. It's obvious that the captain loves his fire station home and he shares it with the current owners. And now a little break for a word about one of our sponsors. This episode has been brought to you by Best Fiends. Kelly, have you seen my phone anywhere? I thought I saw Mort take it and go off into the graveyard with it. Oh, sure enough. He's out there sitting against a tree. You know what he's doing? He's playing Best Fiends. Shocker. Who can blame him? We're all obsessed with it. Well, Kelly, it is a really good way to lose track of time, just to (laughs) let your brain go for a little bit. We're having a great time with it. I'm on level 170, I think. What are you on? I think 285 at this point. What I love is there's a lot of great variety. Not only are there thousands of levels, but then they have these challenges that they introduce along the way, too. So you can get cute little outfits for your fiends. I know. It's like dressing up toys like when you're a kid. (laughs) My ladybug right now, Kelly, because of the challenges that I went through, he looks like a captain of a ship. I'll have to show you. Oh, cute. And I love my fiends versus those slugs. And some of them are just really ugly. (laughs) Don't be so judgmental. Basically, best fiends is like a story. You get these little fiends. They're little bitty baby type ones. And as you go along to the different levels... They grow up and get stronger and more powerful, and they work to defeat these slugs. And the way that they do that is by playing this three-match game. Or as I've said previously, you can match the whole set of things and blow the whole screen up. I think I had about 40 strawberries lined up last night. (laughs) The great thing about this game is anyone can download it and play. And you don't have to devote a lot of time to it. You can play it for a few minutes and get past a level, or you can lose hours if you want to lose hours. <laughs> well, if you guys want to join the fun, you can download Best Fiends free today on the App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R, Best Fiends. Download Best Fiends free today on the App Store or Google Play. 
That's friends without the R, best fiends. Hey, Mort, bring me my phone. But I'm almost on level 200, and I like hanging out with my buddy's temper, Gene and Buggles. And now we have the Hayden House on Park Avenue, also known as Oak Lawn, and is attached to the Howard County Courthouse. This used to be a private residence for decades. Attorney Edwin P. Hayden, who was the first county clerk for Ellicott City, bought the plot of land from a woman named Deborah Disney in 1842. The house Hayden had built was a side passage double pile plan with a raised basement and later added a two-story cast iron porch to the front. Side passage architectural designs have offset front doors, and the double pile means the house is two rooms deep. There is no central passageway. I think the reason they make that specific is because so many homes being built back at that time, as we found when we go into these older homes, is that you have that main hallway that goes to the staircase that goes up, and then you have all the rooms coming off the hallways. Right. This doesn't have that central hallway. The two-and-a-half-story house is topped by a gabled roof. Hayden lived here with his wife and six children until his death in 1850. His family stayed and eventually opened up part of the house as the Oak Lawn Seminary for Girls. In 1871, the house was sold to Henry E. Wooten. Eventually, the house was bought by the county in 1937. A one-story addition was added somewhere around this time. The Board of Education started using the house as offices. The district court then started using the house, and today it is the law library, which works out well since the house is surrounded on three sides by the courthouse. There have been many unexplained occurrences in the house, with coffee pots turning themselves on even when not plugged in, and the lights turn on and off by themselves. Whenever there's something that turns on without being plugged in, (laughs) that always just gets me because you have no explanation for that. Spirit's just trying to be helpful and prepare the coffee in advance. I know. You should be thankful, right? Absolutely. And it gets even better, Kelly, because there is a ghost here called the cooking ghost. (laughs) Now, there's no... I wouldn't mind that. (laughs) Since this is a law library, there's no longer a kitchen in the building. So the scent of soup or bacon and eggs is strange. But man, it'd be kind of nice when you're looking up some stuff and be like, oh. Just don't be cooking fish. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Okay. I guess there could be some bad things about a cooking ghost. Disembodied footsteps would also be heard. A worker in the building reported seeing the full-bodied apparition of a man, and many believe that this is Hayden returning back to his house in the afterlife. And on to Lilburn Mansion, which is located at 3899 College Avenue, and is thought to be one of the most haunted locations in Ellicott City. The mansion was built in the Gothic and Romanesque revival styles in 1857 by a rich businessman named Henry Richard Hazelhurst. He named it Hazeldean. Stone and granite were used in the construction and give it a castle-like look, as does the four-story medieval tower. There were 20 rooms in the 7,000-square-foot house with 12-foot-high ceilings and seven marble fireplaces. The property also had a three-story carriage house and a three-level smokehouse. Hazelhurst added to his riches with the booming iron business during the Civil War. He died in 1900 at the age of 85. Several different owners then had the mansion. John McGinnis bought the mansion in 1923. A fire broke out on Christmas of that year, and thankfully the McGinnises got out safely, but the house was heavily damaged. They rebuilt the house in the same design, but changed the tower. Then the Baldwin family became the new owners, eventually selling to Dr. Eugenia King and her son. The house was restored by 1983 by a new family, and they sold it again in 1988. 
There was an attempt to rezone the house into a bed and breakfast in 2005, but nothing came of it and it remains a private residence. When the mansion was rebuilt after the fire, paranormal activity started, and some believe this happened because the tower was changed. This was the most distinctive element of the house and something Hazelhurst probably really loved. The family also lost several children, and Mrs. Hazelhurst died in the house. And actually, nearly the entire family died before Mr. Hazelhurst, so there was real sorrow here, too. Housekeepers claimed to see the apparition of a little girl wearing a chiffon dress. She would run about all the rooms. She was also seen walking down a hallway, holding the hand of a male entity. The sounds of a crying child are often heard in an upstairs bedroom. The apparition of a man materialized in a doorway once. The dog of one of the owners would never enter a certain room on the second floor. Disembodied footsteps are heard climbing the stairs in the tower, and the windows would open by themselves. One owner, Mr. Balderson, tied them down because it became such an issue. The windows still opened on their own. The aroma of cigar smoke is detected in the library, and a heavy chandelier was known to sway vigorously on a couple of occasions during parties. Spirit saying, get out of my house. People drinking too much and think things are moving around. The Patapsco Female Institute was one of the first female institutes in the South and was chartered in January of 1834. Architect Robert Carey Long Jr. designed the Greek Revival-style building, and it was built by Charles Timonis. Timonis had also built the courthouse. The institute officially opened on January 1, 1837, and was advertised as a finishing school for women, but it didn't have much success. This all changed in 1840 when Elmira Hart Lincoln Phelps was appointed principal. Phelps was a well-known and respected scientist, educator, and author. She changed the focus of the school to training young women to support themselves through teaching. Students ranged in age from 12 to 18, and the maximum number enrolled at one time was 150. Students were charged a basic fee for room, board, washing, and basic instruction in English. Girls could take other courses for additional fees. Phelps helped the women who graduated to find employment. In 1856, Phelps didn't renew her lease on the Institute, and she was replaced by Robert Harris Archer. Archer gave the women more freedom, enlarged the school, and charged higher fees. The school body made more of an impact on the local town, and everything was going well until the Civil War. Archer's finances took a hit, and the school was closed for a time. As mentioned earlier, the 12th New Jersey Regiment set up camp on the front lawn. By 1871, Archer was too ill to run the school, and the lease was transferred to his second wife, Mary. She ran the school with her stepdaughter, Roberta, until 1877, when they transferred the school to Washington, D.C., and renamed it the Archer Institute. The PFI continued to run under various women until 1891, when the school was closed and the joint stock company was dissolved. The property was sold to James E. Tyson. The building was turned into a summer hotel called the Berg Alnwick Hotel and ran that way until 1905 when Lily Tyson made it a private home. During World War I, the building served as a hospital for wounded veterans returning to the States. For a time, it was a theater and then a private home again. Dr. Wiseman bought the property in 1958 and he opened up a nursing home. That didn't last long when the county demanded that all the wood be removed from the property to prevent a fire and that left behind a ruin. The doctor willed the property to the University of Cincinnati. The county bought the building in 1966, and it has been under the care of the Friends of the Patapsco Institute ever since. The building was declared unrestorable, but the land around it was turned into a park. The Patapsco Female Institute is rumored to be haunted. Two women were walking the grounds once, and one of the women looked up and saw a man on top of the building. 
She assumed he was a workman. Then the man seemed to disappear, so she asked her friend where the man had gone. The other woman said that she had seen no man at all. This led the other woman to believe she had seen a ghost. A female ghost is the most seen spirit here. The story goes that a woman named Annie Van Derlot died of pneumonia while attending the Institute. There's no record of her, but people continue to refer to her as Annie or Anna. She is seen wearing a long dress and is usually descending the stairs that are still a part of the ruin. Historic Mount Ida is currently the visitor center and office for the Patapsco Female Institute Historic Park. In the 1850s, Judge John Snowden Tyson purchased the mansion. His daughter, Miss Ida Tyson, was the last of the family to live here, and it's rumored that her ghost still watches over her home. In life, Miss Ida keeps a ring of keys with her at all times, and witnesses say they hear her keys jingling as her ghost walks through the house. And finally, we have probably the most creepy and fun legend in the city. This is Seven Hills Road, and it's said that it lets people experience a demon driver. And our listener who suggested this episode had her own experience there as well. The road got its name from the fact that it rolls over seven hills. The legend claims that if you hit the seventh hill at midnight, you will be chased by a demon driver in a truck. So here's what Melanie shared with us. I had an experience with the demon driver. Growing up, Ellicott City was just minutes from my parents' house. As a teen, I spent hundreds of hours hiking the surrounding park, checking out the ruins, swimming in the Patapsco, and hanging out on Main Street. But that was a long time ago. I live about an hour to the north now, and we have parks up here too. One day at work, one of my office workers had finished her assignment early and was using her free time to explore haunted places in Maryland that she might visit for some Halloween fun. I tuned into her conversation when she began talking about Ellicott City. My memories of the place were pleasant, not haunted. She then starts reading the story off the internet about the demon driver on Campus Road. Apparently, people driving on that road at midnight have been followed by an old car driven by a person without a head. I literally felt my stomach drop to the floor. Goosebumps broke out as a very old, a neglected memory surfaced, and I could hear my high school friends saying over and over in a panicked voice, I can't see his head. Back in high school, my friend and I would jump in our car on a Friday night and just drive. One night, we were roaming the roads around Ellicott City, trying to figure out life at 16. It was around midnight when we decided to give Seven Hills a try. Seven Hills is the local name for Campus Road because it has seven sharp drops. That would actually be pretty fun to drive on. <laughs> it's like a roller coaster. And that's probably part of the problem is you got kids who are going out there driving really fast to get that roller coaster feeling. We were cruising at a conservative speed. The road is known for being dangerous. This car came up behind us out of nowhere. Its grill was broader than her mid-90s Nissan Sentra, and its headlights lit up the cockpit of her car. Conversation lulled as the driver behind us pressured her to go faster. After a couple of minutes, I made a comment about the driver behind us being a jerk. With a high, tight note in her voice, she said, Melanie, I can't see his head. What? He doesn't have a head. I turned around in my seat, and sure enough, the cockpit of the car behind us appeared to be empty. She, being the strong, reasonable person that she still is, maintained her speed and got us to the bottom of the dangerous road, the whole time glancing back and forth in the rearview mirror, muttering, I can't see his head. Once we got to the bottom, the car disappeared. We both assumed he'd pulled into a driveway, or something. I'd never heard that legend until my office worker read it in the office that day, years later. But that memory jumped up so fast. 25 years later, my friend still shuts me down when I try to remind her. Wow. What a tale to tell. 
Now, hopefully it was just the lights were really bright in their car and you just can't really see that well into another vehicle at night. But maybe it was a demon driver. Ellicott City sounds like a neat town to hang out for some shopping, a beer, and some spooks. Is Ellicott City in Maryland haunted? That is for you to decide. Kelly, whenever I'm looking into these various cities, sometimes I stumble across some other really cool things. I know we have a lot of urban explorers in our group, and we like to check out abandoned things as well. So I have a couple of honorable mentions here that don't have any hauntings, but they sounded very cool. First, there was the Enchanted Forest theme park, and this had been in Ellicott City. The remnants of it are now located behind a strip mall. This roadside amusement park opened in 1955 and featured a ride through the caves of Alibaba and the 40 Thieves, the Little Toot Tugboats on the Pond, Mount Vesuvius, Jungle Land, and Cinderella's Castle. It grew to over 52 acres and was open until 1989. Part of the park was bulldozed to make room for a shopping mall. Some rides were moved to Clark's, I think that's Elioak Farm, but the rest of the artifacts had been left behind until around 2017 when the rest of the stuff was removed and replaced by a U-store. Atlas Obscura has a couple of pictures, and I grabbed those off the internet, and I'll put those up on Instagram so you guys can see them. They were done by Urban Atrophy Picks. So it would seem you can't see any of that now, but up until 2017 you could. And then Melanie wrote, Up another hill are the ruins of St. Mary's Seminary, or as it is more commonly known, Hell House. The steep stairs leading to the grounds of the seminary are still there in the hillside. It's quite a hike, but totally worth it. Although the building is gone, at the top of the hill there is a large concrete arch with an 8-foot metal skeleton of a cross on an altar. It is reputed to be the location of devil worship and all kinds of weird stuff, but it's so cool. So I was like, well, let me look into it and see what I can find. St. Mary's College was built in 1868 to train men to be priests. The school shut down in 1972, and a developer bought the property to make apartments. The project was abandoned, as was the property, which was vandalized and took on the name Hell House. Wow, a <laughs> seminary, and now it's known as the Hell House. A fire destroyed a large part of the building in 1997. The coolest thing left is what Melanie described. There is this altar beneath a crumbling colonnade pavilion with a large metal cross sitting beneath the faux classical dome. At least, there was. Atlas Obscura wrote a couple of updates on their website. The first was an update in February of 2020. The gazebo altar and nearby stones have all been mysteriously painted with symbols and other drawings, all black and white. And then a second update in June of 2020 said that all remaining structures have been bulldozed. So this cool-looking altar thing, I'm assuming, no longer exists either. But I did grab their photos as well, and I'll put those up on Instagram. Very good. We'd love to have you guys check out our website at historygoesbump.com. And if you want to send us some feedback, you can do that at historygoesbump at gmail.com. We got an email from Anita. She says, Hi, Diane and Kelly. I absolutely love, love, love your podcast. I live in Ireland and I'm very interested in the supernatural, but to be honest, a little scared too. I have a husband, a total skeptic, and two teenage kids who think I'm a freak going walking through the fields in the dark listening to History Goes Bump ghost stories. (laughs) I have a few stories to share with you both. Perhaps they're not good enough to get a mention, but I'd like to share all the same. When I was about eight or nine years old, my sister and I were sharing a room. She was six years older than me. I was in bed earlier than her, and as my bed was warmer than hers, when she came up, she decided to get in beside me, moving me out of the warm spot to the outside edge of the bed. Nice. (laughs) Sounds like what you do to me. (laughs) I know. I'm like, can you warm up my spot now? Move. (laughs) My bed was beside the wall. I remember grumbling without fully waking up, but fell back to sleep quite quickly. 
At some stage during the night, we heard our room door opening and someone getting into the bed beside me. We both felt the mattress going down. We didn't say anything, but just assumed maybe our parents had a little tiff and mom got into my bed. This would have been very out of character as she never, ever had done that. Next morning, it was just my sister and I in the bed. We talked about what had happened and thought mom had gotten up early. When we got downstairs, nobody was up yet. When mom came down, we asked her, how come she got into bed with us last night? She looked confused and said she wasn't in our room. To this day, we both know what we felt that night and can't explain it. We didn't feel scared in any way. It was just odd and we can't explain it. I am interested in finding out if you or any of your listeners can relate to this story. In 1988, I was 12 years old. My grandparents lived in a separate living area in our house, the granny flat. (laughs) I love love that. My granddad had been ill for some time and wasn't able to move without help or speak. On the night he died, my dad and my aunt were sitting with him. Granny had dementia and didn't know us. Mom, my sister, and I were all in bed. I was reading, so I hadn't been asleep. I got this strange feeling like something telling me to go downstairs and see Granddad. I tried to ignore this for a long time, but the feeling was so strong I had to go. When I went into where he was, my aunt tried to stop me going in, but me being headstrong, I went in anyway. Granddad sat straight up in the bed and pointed to the window... My aunt opened the window and I said, hello. And he said, I love you, Ida. My name is Anita. But that's what he always called me. They were his last words. I also told him I loved him. He then passed away. I think granddad's spirit came to get me that night. I'm so glad it did. We were very close and I'm so glad I got to say goodbye. And she just thanked us for our wonderful stories and hopes we come to Ireland sometime. Well, thank you for reaching out and sharing some of your stories with us. Yeah, those were great stories. Thank you for sharing them. We love hearing from you guys and sharing them with the rest of the listeners. And then Karen had written in the crew, if anyone else is still awake, can you say a prayer for me? Hubby left for work one and a half hours ago and I still can't go to sleep because of last night. I woke up to someone standing at the foot of my bed. He disappeared when I screamed. I used to have someone standing there every night, but haven't had that in forever. I say my prayers every night for protection, but there he was anyway. While technically he didn't hurt me and never has, I'm still not okay with it. Any extra prayers of protection you can send me, I appreciate. So we just ask that everybody do that for Karen. And her house definitely has some stuff going on in there. <laughs> they have definitely. cameras set up everywhere and they record doors opening and moving around on their own and big giant nasty spiders downstairs <laughs> in their cellar area. But yeah, she, it's weird. It's like, why all of a sudden did this thing start showing up at the foot of the bed again after she finally had no issues with it? I was just wondering if perhaps it was somebody related to her family, such as maybe it wasn't Grandma Hutch, but somebody in the family coming to acknowledge the fact that she made the connection between the meatloaf when she made it and Grandma Hutch's birthday. I mean, I don't know. Ah, the spirit was looking for some meatloaf. <laughs> I can see it. I'd be that way too. Hey, you made some of that good meatloaf. Can I have a piece? Well, I'm really curious because I know she has cats as to how they react when that happens. I want to thank you guys for tuning in to this episode. I've been your host, Diane. And this has been Kelly. You take care now. Bye-bye. This episode is brought to you by our executive producers. Dispatches from the Grave Digger. We want to welcome into the cemetery... Ashley Osbun, we're going to be moving you into a garden crypt. Thank you so much for supporting History Goes Bump. We could not produce this show without our executive producers. Be sociable. Drop the chain rattling, neck biting, and shape shifting. And join us on Facebook and Twitter at History Goes Bump. Like the page and follow us.
there's a very unusual grotto that can be found in Margate. Margate? Is that how you talk through your nose? Margate. Margate. The shells are of a local variety, including cockles, mussels, limpets. Limpets? Makes me think of Mr. Limpet. I know. A very famous race was held in August 1830 between a ho... Ho, 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 horse? A horse drawn... Never a dull moment. <laughs> I know, you make the best animal noises. <laughs> Not really. <laughs> Ellicott's meal. Meals? Meals. Ellicott's meals. It's like meals on wheels. Oh, <laughs> my word. <laughs> Ellicott's meals. That's hard to say together. It is very hard to say together. This B&O station was completed in 1831 and was the terminus between Baltimore and Ellicott Mill. Meals. I keep wanting to Meals. We're going to have some more meals. The station's dog, Yogi, used to indicate, Hey, boo-boo, let's go get us some picnic baskets. During World War... World War One. 